It's Monday, September 28th. Welcome to the Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser, and from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman. Happy Monday, gents. Howdy. We were just talking before we started taping the the super moon. The super, is it super moon or super blood moon? Super blood moon. I, I want to go around. super blood moon. Super yeah. blood moon. That's what I want to call. Kind it. of a bust in our neck of the woods. A lot it of was clouds. tough. A lot of clouds last night. It was night. tough. There were a lot of clouds. I was really amped. I mean, I was telling my daughters all about it, um, and I was excited too. I mean, I like space and all that stuff. So for me, it was pretty exciting. We got some good glimpses. I mean, the cloud cover kind of off and on, but right as right as the moon, right as the moon. It was almost at like a full eclipse. The clouds really got so bad that it just kind of, yeah, all right, well, I guess that's about all we're going to see. So, You'll be able to find some replays on social media somewhere. Oh, I, well, that's interesting you say Catch that. There was a guy the on, there was a guy on Periscope who periscoped, of course, you know, this whole thing. And he had, I guess, his phone <laughs> linked up to his telescope. And like nice. he goes by the, the handle, oddly enough, bad astronomer. I think that's just sort of a play on the fact that he's actually a pretty good one. But um, it, it is still up on Periscope, so I would encourage you to go check it out, because it's really cool. A lot of fun commentary, but um, just another neat way that uh, you know, you're seeing the way that social media and technology is, is really bringing all of this great stuff to the masses. Yeah, definitely check it out, because as we were saying, the next one of these is not happening until 2033. <laughs> so. I intend to be here for that one. I hope to be here for that one. Um, let's uh, dig into the full mailbag. Let's talk about Alcoa, which is in the news, and it's not even earnings season yet. But we'll start with Under Armour. Shares down a little bit today, but I can't imagine anyone at headquarters is upset about that because Jordan Spieth, the 22-year-old golfer, yes, just 22 years old, won the FedEx Cup. A $10 million bonus. He's won $22 million. That's not endorsements. That's using his talents on the links. It's the most ever for a golfer in a single season. And as we talked about earlier this year, Under Armour very smartly locked him up in January to a 10-year endorsement deal. they got to be happy. Did I mention he's 22? He's yeah. 22! Does that mean he's going for $23 million next year? <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, it's amazing. It, 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 means that, it means that Under Armour has got this athlete at the top of his sport when he's only 22 years yeah. old. And presumably, barring injury, he's going to be at or near the top for the next decade. I mean, he should be. I mean, if you think about where Tiger Woods is just getting ready to turn 40 this year, and he's probably been a bit more injured than your typical golfer. Granted, I mean, he's worked very hard, and, and it, it could be argued his swing puts a bit more stress on his body. That actually could be pretty encouraging where Jordan Spieth is concerned, because for, for those of us who play golf and, and know, you know, when you see someone like him swing the club, he doesn't really overpower a golf course at all. He just plays the game really well, and he's got a good head on his shoulders. And I think that really he's in line with Generally speaking, just you know, Under Armour. We talked a lot about Under Armour. Is really Kevin Plank. I mean, it's just an extension of Kevin Plank sort of persona. And while he's very aggressive and a go-getter, he's also a big believer in humility. And I mean, humble but hungry is is something that that they that's one of those one of those uh, sort of mottos they they go by there at the company. And so I think you know Jordan Spieth, he flies right along that line. And I think you know we're talking about how. They really realized that they needed to consider locking him up. Their golf guy um, at, at Under Armour really recognized what the potential there 
when he finished when he when he ended up not winning the Masters, I think in 2014, because of the fact the way he handled that loss. I mean, there's a lot to be a lot to be said sort of in golf and how you handle sort of adversity and loss and defeat like that. And so, uh, you know, I think they saw a lot in him personally that lined up with the way they sort of uh, you know want their message. Uh, to come across, and so you know, getting getting him on their team, they've done a, a good job of really building up a good arsenal of golfers. And I mean, it's it could be argued that golf is in in the you know the midst of a real challenge here. I mean, it's not as popular a game as it once was. I mean, if you look at the numbers, they don't lie. Back in two thousand, in the U.S., you had almost thirty million golfers playing uh, five hundred eighteen million rounds for the year. You fast forward to two thousand and thirteen, that was down to about twenty four million golfers playing. About 462 million rounds per year. So, so those numbers again, they they continue to trend a little bit downward for obvious reasons. It's expensive. It's time consuming. It's very hard, um, especially if you take it up at an older age. But uh, we definitely have a new uh, arsenal of of young golfers out there on tour. Jordan Spieth is going to be a part of that, I think, for some time to come. You look at the market; they say it's probably going to grow. Golf apparel, maybe like less than five percent per year for the next five to ten. So, I think it's going to be a market share stealing opportunity for Under Armour, rather than just an all-out growth opportunity with a current market share that they have. They're going to have to go out there and take some away from Adidas, from Nike, from all the all the Callaway, from the traditional players. And I think you know, yeah, if you got a player that's dominating the PGA Tour with the bright, colorful outfits that that. Under Armour puts out and and the technical gear that they have, I think they have the chops to do it, and now they have the the visibility on the public eye for that. Well, and you you mentioned Kevin Plank, and we we talk about him a lot, but it it is to your point, it is nice to see that he's got this strong uh, set of lieutenants. Uh, Ryan Kuehl, I think I'm pronouncing that last name Kuehl or Keely, yeah, um, who's the senior director of golf at Under Armour, and he's you know he's the one who really went to Kevin Plank. As you said, uh, about a year and a half ago, when when Spieth lost the Masters, um, which is I, I think a, a great indication, and as we talk about from time to time, it's easy and natural, I suppose, to celebrate as investors when a stock is going up, mm-hmm. um, and I think likewise for business. They already had Spieth under contract, yeah. you know, and mm-hmm. the fact that he in in the wake of that loss and looked at how Spieth handled it, I think it says something about Ryan Kuehl that he went to Plank and said, "We've got this guy under contract. We need to rip up that contract and sign him <laughs> to a new, longer for him." And potentially for us, more lucrative deal, and they did just that. Yeah, that was smart to do. I mean, for a number of reasons, I think it'll prove out to be a smart thing to have done. But when you you sort of look at where Under Armour is today, it's a smaller company than Nike, obviously, and it, it still has very high aspirations. Um, they're looking at trying to get up to seven and a half billion dollars in sales by two thousand and eighteen. <coughs> Excuse me. But um, yeah, I think one of the you're going to see them continue to make I think very um, aggressive types of investments towards professional athletes of all walks, and and probably you know sort of going sort of that niche sort of way as well. I mean, I think is Misty Copeland the the dancer, right? I mean, that's that's something that you just haven't really. That's sort of a bit different, right? It's a bit of a different direction, I think, and and they've done a really good job of bringing her to the forefront and creating some interest in in maybe uh, you know an athletic. Ability that doesn't get uh, you know nearly enough play. Um, I do think it's very interesting for Under Armour, and I mean I can sit here and talk about this stuff all day long as a golf nerd. But um, 
I do think it's an advantage from Under Armour's perspective in that when you look back in the day when Nike really jumped in there and took on uh, Tiger Woods, and Nike then really used that as sort of a, a sort of a way to catapult them into the equipment side of the business, which I don't know. Looking back, that that necessarily is is the ideal way to go. I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to say that Under Armour will or won't do this. It doesn't look like they will. And and I honestly hope that they don't do this. I hope they don't pursue that equipment side and trying to make golf clubs like irons and woods or even golf balls for that matter, because that is a bit of a different line of work there. And that is something where um, that is a very tough space to infringe upon. You got a lot of names out there that have been in that business a long time and have really come a long way where golf club technology goes. And so that that I think is is potentially a very big advantage for Under Armour in that they're not going to be seen as potentially uh, you know if, if someone signs on with them, they're not going to necessarily feel like they have to go all in with not just apparel but but equipment like golf clubs as well because because is all of you golfers out there know Graydon Trip? I'm looking in your direction. You know that we're very particular about the clubs that you swing, and and I think that uh, I think that we'll probably see Under Armour continue to sort of stay back on that front. Uh, one more thing on Under Armour, and then we'll move on to Alcoa. And this has nothing to do with golf. This has to do with sort of general sales. They do a, a, a pretty nice job in terms of direct-to-consumer sales. Uh, is that is is the pressure for increasing direct-to-sales for Under Armour? Um, is the pressure to increase that greater in the United States? Because when you look at the number of stores, they are physical stores. They are opening. I think they're they're planning about a hundred in 2015, and three quarters of that is in Latin America and Asia. So I'm wondering if, when they look outside the United States, they see the growth coming in stores uh, more so than direct to consumer. Well, I think well the direct to consumer I think is. So direct to consumer is not only e-commerce sales, but it's those stores that they build out. And so you know you have the Under Armour brand houses, for example, where they are able to fully control that experience versus something like a Dick Sporting Goods, where they're kind of part of a bigger, uh, you know, piece of piece of the puzzle there. Um, and, and I think that they're seeing the results of of the the direct to consumer here, the success they've had here, and they are taking that overseas. Places like Latin America, they see tremendous opportunity in China. We saw the numbers of Nike just brought in from China, and I think Under Armour really sees that as a frontier as well. Um, you know, and speaking with our friends over at CNBC Asia, you know, every earnings season, it seems like Under Armour is gaining more and more traction over there. I think I saw the the number was that this month of September, Under Armour strategy was to open one store in China for every day of the month. And so, you know, the direct to consumer experience, whether it be the physical store or the 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 e commerce. Um, infrastructure. I mean, that's something they're going to continue to grow out as time goes on. And really, they can win both ways. I mean, Dick Sporting Goods and retailers like that, they really need to be partners with companies like Under Armour and Nike because then they can roll out a lot of the latest and brand new equipment. Um, but, but, you know, it goes to show Under Armour's sort of strength in that value chain and they can play it both ways. Alcoa announced that it is splitting into two separate companies. Uh, help me understand this, Taylor. One is what they're referring to as upstream activities, and that's the business that's going to retain the Alcoa name. Yep. The other is value-add businesses. What what are these two businesses? I mean, the shares of Alcoa up around 4 or 5% this morning, so clearly this is being seen as a smart move for the business and a win for shareholders. But what are the two businesses as you see it? Yeah, you kind of compare these to oil producers and refiners. You got the upstream 
which is the bauxite mining and the aluminum smelting and the aluminum smelting. And um, that's more of the commodity-based business where you're going to see, I think they basically created a business for traders to invest in and a business for long-term investors to invest in. And that's the value-added business where you're selling the finished products to the aerospace industry, the automotive industry, and any other end user of aluminum. And uh, for example, this business had 40% of its revenue from the aerospace industry last year. So if you want to take a look at where the value-added business that they're rolling out, which Klaus Kleinfeld, the CEO of Alcoa Now, he'll be taking the CEO role there, remaining chairman with the upstream business. But I think um, I think he's moving to the business that personally I would invest in if I was the value add business, the value added business, which right? At this moment, to be named, does not have. Yes, a name. right. Um, so I think if you want to look at how this business is going to be doing in the future, you look at the aerospace business and automotive. I think is going to be a big growth driver because you've seen a lot of manufacturers out there. Um, Tesla included um, using an all aluminum frame for a lot of the vehicles because it's strong, it's lighter than steel, um, it's slightly more expensive, but right now aluminum prices are, are low, so more companies are testing that model. And um, I, I think that personally, that, that business is the one I would be targeting. The, the upstream business, they've really been focusing on cutting costs. They closed about 30% of their smelters over the last seven or eight years. So the business on the upstream is a lot smaller than it used to be, and rightfully so, because aluminum prices are, are struggling. And China is making a big push into the aluminum uh, smelting line of business. They're aiming to create the largest aluminum producer in the world by combining a few different entities over there, state-run entities, to overtake Russia's state-run aluminum producer, which is number one right now, and Alcoa, which is in Will, is number two looks to be number three. So, I think there's going to be less competition, but it's it's a commodity based business. So, for me, I would I would take the shares of the new company. I know we never want to fall in love with one single data point, mm-hmm. but can't we all agree that when a company is splitting in two, and the CEO of that company picks which one he or she is going to go run. Isn't that all you need to know? I mean, we talked about this recently with Meg Whitman and Hewlett-Packard. Yeah. She's going to go run the enterprise part of the business. She's a smart woman. I mean, isn't that as clear an indication of which business has this brighter future? Well, and Pete Miller, National Oil World yeah. Marco, he's the chairman of D-Now, so uh, you, know, you kind of look at that as well. It's, I don't know if it's just them thinking, hey, I need to go be the... the, the the driver of this new business, maybe it's not prepared yet, but for me personally, it seems like Alcoa has been planning this for several years. Maybe not planning 100% that they're going to do it, but they've been gearing up these two different business units for the potential that this could happen. So I think they're in a good place right now, but yeah, I think Klaus probably has his head on, head fo- focus in the right direction. If they've been planning this for several years, what do you suppose has been going on that they don't have a name for the I'm gonna say, company. man. How do they not have another? Name? I think they've just been aligning the businesses because investors have been pushing for it for a while, and they mentioned in a couple articles I read that since 2007, 2008, when aluminum prices really, you know, they were at at their peak over the last decade or so, and um, apparently they've been realigning some things for the potential for this to happen. But yeah, you think a name would be at the top of the list to at least have an idea of what to call it when you make the announcement. So the timing right now is that this split is probably going to happen sometime in the middle by the middle of 2016. So they've got some time. Mm-hmm. But in a weird way, I feel like they have just added more pressure on themselves. If they had just come out and said we're splitting the business in two, the upstream one is going to be called Alcoa and the value add one is going to be called, you know, whatever. 
I, I think we all would have just said, oh, okay, yeah, that's that works. And now, all I care about is what are they going to name it? <laughs> like, I feel like you better come up with a good name now because you, you, you clearly on. couldn't do it the first time yeah. around. They couldn't slide it under the radar now. Yeah. Now. Well, I think it's it's very clear. I mean, this is this is where we need to reach out to our listenership. Yes. Really, and and. Uh, we need to solicit ideas here. We'll pass them along. Uh-huh. Drop us an email. Mark, marketfoolery at fool.com. Marketfoolery at fool.com. Any names uh, for the value-add business for Alcoa? We'll absolutely share those with them. Question from Jonathan Smith in Cleveland, Ohio. I own some Zillow, and I'm thinking about buying some Google. Someone on your show explained how the Zillow split worked, but I'm still confused about how to choose which stock to buy. If I buy some Google, do I buy under the ticker symbol GOOG or GOOGL? How would I choose? It's very confusing. There's no question because if you don't keep up with this kind of stuff, um, you, you look at that and you think, well, what in the world's the difference other than just one letter here? Um, and the price right now. And the prices yeah. are different. And so uh, you go back to, to when this happened. A little background. So, with Google, they split their shares into a new C class share. And that was declared a dividend for shareholders at the time. And it has no voting rights. And so, if you look at Google's share structure here now, they have Class A shares that trade on the market. And those are the GOOGL shares. Those shares, the Class A Google shares, have one vote per share. The Class B share, those shares don't even trade. Those are shares owned by my insiders, the founders of the business. Those have 10 votes per share. And the the Class C shares, as we already clarified, that's the G-O-O-G. The Class C shares, which are the ones that recently just split off as a dividend, they have no votes per share whatsoever. The whole point behind this share split from the very beginning was to make sure to keep power of the company in the founder's hands. Um, over time, as restricted stock awards and options are awarded to employees you know that can dilute the share account it can spread the power out a little bit more as far as voting is concerned and so this was a way for Google to to make sure to keep the power in the founders hands the same thing was done with Zillow and incidentally the same thing is going to happen here with Under Armour very soon where we're going to see another class of Under Armour share I believe it's going to be UAC so so be prepped for that Under Armour shareholders um in theory, the only difference between the Class A and the Class C shares, I mean, there is the price difference. If you look today, Class A shares are trading for $633 and change. Class C shares are trading for about $605. They represent, they each represent basically the same economic interest of the company. The difference is the vote. And so then you have to ask yourself as a shareholder Am I going to pay up for the vote? Does the vote matter to me? Am I going to pay up for that vote? Gesundheit. Um, now, I mean, this is a very interesting question. I mean, there, there are going to be people who fall on other, you know, either side of the fence here where this is concerned. The bottom line, though, is that you need to ask yourself: Does the vote really matter? In, in all practicality, it does not matter at all because at the end of the day, um, you know, when you look at the just based on the on the most recent uh, 14A that was filed on April 23rd of this year, you look you look at Page, Brendan, Schmidt, and they all three have you know 60% plus of the voting power of this company. So no matter what happens, they control the deal here. So as a shareholder, if you own 10 shares of Google, 20 shares of Google, that means you get 10 or 20 votes if you buy those those Class A shares. Does that really matter to you? That vote is not going to matter one bit. Like you can think it matters, and it may in principle matter, and that's fine. 
I don't begrudge anyone that. Um, does it matter to you really, though? And, and so if it does, you're going to pay up a little bit for that vote. If not, then you could look at the Class C shares as perhaps a discounted way, a way to get maybe uh, a bit of a discount on a Google share, because in theory, they are supposed to represent essentially the same, the same amount. Um, I suspect we'll always see a little bit of a spread there just because of that vote. But uh, but you know that that's something that each individual has to ask themselves. The reason why we have both shares on the scorecard in I think it was Rule Breakers was referenced in the question mm-hmm. is because we owned Google before it split, and when it split, we held on to it all to represent the same interest we had you know before the split in Google. Uh, personally, I don't own any shares of Google. If I were going to go buy some. I personally would probably look at the Class C shares without the vote because, in principle, I couldn't care less. And I feel like maybe the Class C shares would be a way to get a little bit of a discount there. Um, But that all said and done, I am not in the market for Google shares to begin with. So take that for what it's worth. At the same time, I'm probably not investing in a company where I feel the need to have a vote, right? I feel like I should be able to trust management enough to not have to go in there and cast a vote for anything. Yeah, I mean that's a good point. Like I think a lot of people get worked up about these kinds of stock yeah. splits, and I, I mean that's fine. And maybe with Zillow, you could have a little bit more criticism there because it's a newer business. Mm-hmm. When I look at businesses like Under Armour and Google, and I, I hear people, you know, griping about that, I'm like, hey, look, I mean, <laughs> these owners, these founders, the guys and gals that got these businesses to where they are today. I'm pretty okay with what they've done thus far. Yeah, I'm willing to thousands of percent returns. So yeah, far, right? I'll, I'll hitch my wagon to that star <laughs> and just kind of keep on keeping on. Yeah, I think the last time Nell Minow was on the radio show, I, she and I went back and forth a little bit on that, and mm-hmm. because that was the point I was making to her was, "Hey, look, if if I really feel like I need to keep an eagle eye on the founder, the CEO, the management, that kind of thing, then that's probably." Not a business I want to yeah. invest in. Yeah. It shouldn't be a hang up from the very get Yeah. There's a reason I love Aubrey McClendon when he was running <laughs> Chesapeake Energy. Part of that was because I didn't own shares of Chesapeake Energy. I could just watch the spectacle. They talk about it with impunity. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. I mean, that's a great point, though. There's so many ideas out there, so many ways to invest. And, and everybody is everybody's different. It doesn't mean that one's right and one's wrong. It's just everybody kind of has their own way, and you kind of find your own path and, and be okay with those decisions you make. It's again with this with this thing here with Google. It's it's not that one's right and what's wrong. It's it's just it, it's going to depend on the individual investor and really kind of what they what they you know hold as the highest priority. Thanks for being here, guys. Appreciate Thank you. It. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.